0: Hi there, I'm Tiara Vianne, and this is KJZZ's Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. It's the latest stories from the week designed to catch you up on some highlights from our community. Thanks so much for listening for the week of July 17th, 2023. In the news, the longest stretch of 110 degree days in Phoenix history continues. And this brutal heat wave is leading to record electricity usage. Catherine Davis-Young found out how power companies are handling the demand.
1: What if a prolonged power outage knocked out AC for everyone in Phoenix during a heat wave? A study in the journal Environmental Science and Technology published in May considered that worst-case scenario. Researchers found nearly half the city's population, about 800,000 people, would need emergency care. Nearly 13,000 would die.
2: In hot cities, air conditioning is a critical lifeline.
1: David Hondula directs Phoenix's Office of Heat, Response, and Mitigation, and he was among the study's co-authors. He emphasizes he does not expect this to actually happen.
3: We're talking about slivers of a fraction of a percent of possibility.
1: But he says the findings do underscore just how important it is to keep Phoenix's power on. And that is becoming more of a challenge for providers each year. Phoenix Utilities, APS, and SRP both reported record demand in the past week. Pam Suryella is SRP's Director of Supply, Trading and Fuels.
4: We're one of the fastest growing areas
1: in the U.S. So it's not too surprising to see our peak demand needs increasing year over year. But climate change is making our summers hotter and our heat waves longer. That's also driving the need for more electricity. Air conditioning is
4: probably one of our single largest loads.
1: Suryella says the huge demand of hot summer afternoons is what SRP plans for all year. The strategy is to be able to draw from a variety of power sources. In SRP's case, coal, natural gas, nuclear power, and renewables.
5: No one resource really solves the whole
4: energy need, so you have to make sure that you have the right mix of resources in your portfolio to to ensure reliability.
1: And Suryala says SRP continues to look for ways to add backup power to that mix. On a recent hot morning, Bob Ellis, plant director at SRP's Agua Fria generating station in Glendale showed me three natural gas turbines that serve as extra power when the system sees peak demand. These turbines have been there since the late 1950s and while they still work, They take 12 to 14 hours to get turned on.
2: You've got a big hunk of steel, that steam turbine, and you have to warm that up and you have to make sure it's evenly warmed before you actually put it online.
1: SRP is good at predicting when hot weather is coming and they'll need that power ready to go, but they can't always plan 12 to 14 hours ahead. So this year, SRP installed two new turbines just across the lot from the older ones. Ellis says those can start generating enough power for 22,000 homes in under 10 minutes.
2: They are fast, very, very responsive.
1: Ellis says that's helping SRP be better prepared for disruptions than ever before.
2: We get a lot of fluctuations from maybe another power plant trip. It could be a monsoon that came in and wiped out a bunch of transmission lines. It could be a cloud going over a solar field. But we use these to smooth out the grid.
1: This generating station is also home to one of SRP's newest battery storage sites, where Tesla Megapack batteries installed in 2021 hold enough backup energy to keep about 5,000 homes powered for four hours. The valley's other provider, APS, says it relies on a similar mix of power sources to prepare for peaks, and both utilities offer incentive programs to encourage customers to conserve. APS's Jessica Del Rincón says even small changes like switching to LED light bulbs can help. Actually, those LED lights emit less heat, which means that your house can stay cooler. SRP and APS say storms are the most likely cause of outages, and part of the reason it's been so hot this July is because there hasn't been much monsoon activity. But according to Hondula's study, extreme weather and natural disasters nationwide are making blackouts much more common than they used to be. While the chances of a major blackout in Phoenix are still slim, Hondula says the study serves as a reminder that if disaster strikes, a cooler city would be a safer one. His office is advocating for Phoenix to plant more shade trees and increase use of cool roof technology.
2: The attention the study received actually provided a lot of validation for some of the programs we've been trying to stand up, some of the funding we've been pursuing.
1: As the city's population keeps growing and temperatures keep climbing, he says we'll have to continue to look for heat relief strategies beyond just AC. Catherine Davis-Young, KJZZ News, Phoenix. In Fronteras News.
0: It's been a little more than two months since the pandemic-era protocol, Title 42, came to an end at the U.S.-Mexico border. The policy allowed border officers to turn away migrants without giving them a chance to ask for asylum, despite U.S. and international laws that require it. So what does it look like now? From our Fronteras desk, Elisa Resnick reports. By the time
4: Title 42 came to a close on May 11th, Angela, an asylum seeker from Venezuela, was already on the road. We're not using her full name because she's worried it will affect her asylum case in the U.S. We walked through almost all of Central America, she says. I met her and her husband at the Kino Border Initiative, an aid center for migrants in Nogales, Sonora. They've been through 11 countries to get here. She says they can't go back to Venezuela because her husband abandoned his military service when he objected to government actions there. They were living in Chile, but it kept getting more expensive to survive.
1: Getting asylum?
4: Getting asylum is very rare in those countries, she says. So back in April, she and her husband set out for the U.S. and sent their five-year-old daughter to live with her grandmother.
1: Porque yo no me a
4: I didn't dare take her through the Darien Gap, Angela says. That's the land bridge connecting South and Central America. It's a roadless, deadly stretch of jungle many migrants are using to get to the U.S.-Mexico border. She's tearing up talking about it now.
1: pero ¿no?
4: I miss her, Angela says, but I couldn't expose her to that. She and her husband came to Nogales because it's where they managed to secure a CBP-1 appointment. Customs Border Protection rolled out the smartphone app earlier this year. Asylum seekers can use it to make appointments with border officers at a handful of ports border-wide. Approaching the port like this as an asylum seeker was nearly impossible under Title 42 because the protocol allowed border officers to turn most away on public health grounds. Rights advocates hope for a shift when the protocol ended. Instead, Pedro de Velasco with the Kino Border Initiative says families in Nogales are finding more confusion.
1: It's until they arrive here that they learn that they cannot simply approach uh, the port of entry and request admission because there's
3: a wait line.
4: Thousands of asylum seekers now vie for one of 1,450 CBP appointments allotted border-wide each day. De Velasco says it can take months to secure an appointment, and many in Nogales can't afford to wait.
1: They're hoping that they're able to secure an appointment through CBP One App, but in the meantime, I mean, they don't feel safe waiting here in Mexico. Most of the folks that we are serving, they're actually Mexican nationals that are fleeing violence and persecution, and they're forced to wait in the same country that they're trying to flee
4: asylum seekers are now lining up at the port of entry here without CBP one appointments, hoping to explain their situation. Some are sleeping here for days or even more than a week. Municipal authorities in Nogales started the second wait list for them. De Velasco says it's about 300 people long right now. Only a few families from that list are seen each day.
1: The border is just one of the steps for people getting to where where they want to go. And we are creating this bottleneck.
4: A report released this month by the advocacy group Human Rights First found that asylum seekers have been subject to violent attacks like rape, kidnapping and other assaults by organized crime while waiting for CBP-1 appointments. Meanwhile, asylum seekers who don't use the app face a higher threshold for getting to stay in the U.S. They have to prove that they tried to get protection in another country first and were denied. Christina Asensio, with Human Rights First, says her team found many families were unaware of the new policies altogether.
5: People are driven to, to desperation to try to seek
4: safety. De Velasco says even those who manage to secure CBP-1 appointments, like Angela and her husband, face an uncertain future if and when they make it to the US.
3: <laughs>
4: in a picture Angela has of her daughter, she's in a baby blue dress and has a bushel of black curly hair just like her mom. She hopes to get asylum in the U.S. and eventually bring her daughter to join them. On phone calls, she says her daughter asks why they
1: came. Those
4: are things she doesn't understand, Angela says. Everything I do is for her. And later on, she'll realize all the sacrifices we're making. Elisa Resnick KJZZ News, reporting from Nogales.
0: And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Thanks for listening. In business news... More than 5,000 fencers recently came to Phoenix to compete in this year's USA Fencing Summer Nationals. It's an age-old sport steeped in three traditional weapons. But as Jill Ryan reports, the newest form of fencing comes from a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away.
4: (laughs)
6: Fencing is an ancient sport with its origins in multiple countries, including France. For centuries, the sport had three disciplines with three respective weapons, saber, foil, and epee. Phil Andrews is the CEO of USA Fencing.
2: Sabre comes from war, and it's a slashing weapon. So the idea was you would slash somebody effectively across their torso um, or across their head, and you would kill the human but not the horse, because the horse is an asset that could be brought to your side of a war in Europe.
6: In sport, a person uses the entire sword to slash their padded opponent for the point. The two other disciplines are foil and epee. Both only use the tip of the blade to pierce the opponent, again while padded, but their targeted areas are different. But new to this year's summer nationals was what France has already recognized as its fourth fencing weapon, the lightsaber. Yes, like the one from Star Wars. Well, not exactly. The LED lights of the lightsabers are contained in hard plastic tubing.
3: It's based on the LED saber, which is uh, basically a replica like the lightsabers you see in Star Wars and and all of that. Um, We have a simplified hilt, so it's essentially just a flashlight, very durable. We can bash them against each other without breaking them.
6: That's Chad Eisner with Terra Prime Light Armory, but more on him later. While it's not as formally established in the U.S., this sport goes by many names, one of which is light fencing. Unlike traditional fencing's combat zone, which is a long but narrow rectangular area, light fencing is a more 360-degree sport typically played in a circular arena. F- uh,
2: fencing Federation has it as a full part of their nationals. So we brought them here to trial it, demo it. I did it yesterday for our participants
3: here.
6: Light fencing and its specific rules have been curated and tested by the organization Terra Prime Light Armory. The head of TPLA is Chad Eisner. In
3: 2018, we were able to um, get the French Fencing Federation to accept this sport as the fourth fencing weapon. And they just had their first uh, national tournament back in, in February.
6: The Federation officially recognized lightsaber dueling as a sport in 2019. In light fencing, imagine what a regular fencer looks like in their padded white armor and meshed mask. Now, bulk up the pads, make it all black, and add a lightsaber with a color of your choice, and that is what these athletes look like. And its rule set takes a page out of each fencing discipline.
3: So we can hit the entire body, we're pretty much doing cuts, we don't thrust with these blades because they injure you. We work on a system of priority or right-of-way, so when one person starts an attack, the other person must defend.
6: Eisner says TPLA's goal is threefold, to introduce sport to people who would not likely otherwise become athletes, be a gateway to fencing, and also create a governing body that works in conjunction with USA fencing. Like most combat sports, traditional fencing has divisions usually by gender, age, or skill level. One thing light fencing is introducing out of the get-go is gender and body neutrality. Anna Faulkner is a TPLA certified light fencer.
0: Participation is varied from age, gender identity, body type, background, it is welcome to anyone with or without a background in fencing or any other form of fighting.
6: Eisner says as they continue to build, they may create different age and weight classes, but the sport will remain co-ed while simultaneously being fair. He says that's possible because the sport is played in turns where one player has to signal to the other that they have priority.
3: And with that turn-based kind of system, somebody who is larger, stronger, and faster, only does not automatically have an advantage.
6: COVID-19 has delayed many efforts to officially establish light fencing in the U.S., but an invitation from USA Fencing to demonstrate the sport here in Phoenix brought them another step closer. Jill Ryan, KJZZ News, Phoenix. In education news. The
0: National Speech and Debate Tournament calls itself the largest academic competition in the world. Phoenix and Mesa recently hosted close to 7,000 students from the U.S., Guam, Mariana Islands, Canada, China, and Taiwan. Christina Estes takes
7: us inside the convention center. At first glance, it's a typical gathering of middle and high schoolers. Lots of chatter, selfies, and ice cream. But it feels different.
0: We began with 242 contestants in-
7: It's not that they're uber-confident, it's that they recognize their voices are really being heard.
1: Because my hijab is not dangerous and should not be something that people are afraid of.
7: Audience members packed the ballroom.
5: From a young age, boys who look like me have been conditioned to believe that we are not worthy of opportunity.
7: Thousands more attend the live stream.
6: But once you are here in this country, these struggles do not stop.
7: A record 6,700 students participated. Bozeman High School in Montana sent the most, 31. And several schools sent a single student.
6: You're given a platform and you get to say what you want. And I think that's what's really special about speech and debate.
7: Cora Wintrin is among seven competitors from Desert Vista High School in Phoenix.
6: Speech and debate is similar to track and field in the sense
7: that there's a ton of different events. Her events are poetry and debate. There's also dramatic interpretation
6: In a window. I, 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 no clock.
7: and humorous interpretation. Short skirts! She's a fashion designer. She's divorced is what she is. As Wintreen enters her senior year, she credits the research and training for making her dig deeper.
6: And I think that's something really valuable, especially as we grow up and go into the world and start voting. because. I just know that I don't want to be somebody that's swayed by, you know, like false propaganda almost, or like, you know how politics can be.
7: (laughs) Her coach at Desert Vista is Marco Dominguez. You see the results like right in front of you. Like you see it immediately. He coaches more than 80 students. They usually get together twice a week. Plus... They wake up in the morning, they run their piece. Uh, some of them run it while they're driving to school. They, they sometimes come in between classes to, to run something. They come at lunch and they're, they're prepping and researching. They stay after school and they prep and research more. And prep more while waiting to compete. These two are running what they call articulators.
2: Jack the jailbird jacked a jeep. Jack
4: the jailbird jacked a jeep.
7: The National Speech and Debate Association says participants get better grades and they're more likely to attend top colleges than their peers. The group boasts 2 million alumni, including Academy Award winners Jordan Peele and Brad Pitt and Supreme Court Justices Samuel Alito and Sonia Sotomayor. This activity is really where I got my start. In high school, Anna Manasco competed in extemporaneous speaking. Today, she's a federal judge in Alabama and a first-time judge at the National Speech and Debate Tournament. This is inspiring. Judging can be tough when a student makes a mistake or their time runs out before they finish. So your heart does hurt for them in that circumstance, but all of that's a learning experience. I mean, that's a microcosm of the real world. The association counts 140,000 students among its members and nearly 4,000 coaches, including Marco Dominguez. He says there is no mold for the perfect participant. Some can afford private coaches, some can't afford a suit for competition. And I think that spectrum of, of students is beautiful because once you get on stage and once you perform and once you speak, what's important is what you say. Cora Wintering says she's discovered a new side of herself.
6: I never thought I'd be able to perform poetry the way that I do. I never thought that I'd be able to speak to people the way that I do. Speech and debate is really something magical.
7: Multiply her feelings by thousands.
4: Today I dedicate this performance to my speech coach.
7: And you better understand this event.
4: Thanks for helping me learn how to use my voice.
7: (laughs) Where teenagers can be creative and vulnerable and supportive. Christina Estes, KJZZ News, Phoenix.
0: And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. In science news, it's important for the crew of a multi-year mission carrying an asteroid sample to get every step of its retrieval right. As Greg Haney reports, researchers are doing a series of rehearsals for when the asteroid capsule lands back on Earth.
2: The OSIRIS-REx mission is composed of a team of experts from the U of A, NASA, and Lockheed Martin. The mission is set to provide materials from the asteroid Bennu without it being exposed to Earth's elements. U of A professor Dante Loretta says that is crucial to the goal of understanding the role asteroids played in making Earth habitable. In particular, delivering the water that's in our oceans and the gases that are in our atmosphere, as well as the origin of life. We're really interested in the organic chemistry in these asteroids which predate the formation of the Earth. The team is scheduled to do two more major rehearsals in gathering the sample before it lands in late September. Greg Hawney, KJZZ News, Phoenix.
0: Now from KJZZ Original Productions, a new art exhibit explores how we communicate with each other. Here's the show co-host,
2: Mark Brody. An exhibit at the Scottsdale Museum of Contemporary Art delves into how we communicate with each other. Language in Times of Miscommunication features 18 American artists who made their work between 2016 and this year.
5: Together they create a conversation about the way in which, at this moment in time, communication and miscommunication have become a major part of the way in which we see reality.
2: Lauren O'Connell is curator of contemporary art at SMOCA. She says the show goes beyond media, the concept of fake news or which cable news channel you prefer, and takes a philosophical look at how knowledge is formed. I met O'Connell at the museum recently to talk more about it, and we started with what she sees as the general theme of the show.
5: Oftentimes, communication comes down to a few things, right? It's not just the words that we use. It's our body language, our facial expressions, the tone in our voice. So much of how we communicate today is through technology, whether it's on our phones, by texting, social media, many, many different ways. So um, there's that, right? So you need all of those key indicators. But also, we live in a time where um, there are buzzwords. So if someone says a word that feels separate from how you see the world. Instead of just listening and being open to hear a different perspective, we often shut off and push people away. So it's not just about the people communicating, but it's also about receiving the information.
2: It's interesting you mentioned, um, you know, people being on their phones a lot because in a lot of art exhibitions, there's all sorts of different media that are being used. And here, you you have that as well. What role does technology seem to play in how some of the artists interpreted the idea of of miscommunication and language in these times?
5: Well, I mean, one of the interesting works that speak a bit to technology and the transition of the way that we share information is Elizabeth Moran's backward ran the sentences until reeled the mind, (laughs) which is a mouthful in and of itself. But that work really looks at um, the first year of Time magazine in 1923 and the invention of fact-checking, which technically Time magazine did by creating the first fact-checking department. Elizabeth is a photographer by trade, and the work is photographs of micro scans or the prints of photographs of micro scans of original document or original pages from the magazine. And when even looking at it, you know, now just even the format of the magazine seems really unfamiliar unless you are doing heavy, going to heavy reading magazines. Um, but then in and of itself, you see the the scratches from time and the debris. So sure, technology is just implied in that, in the separation from it. But then also Anna The Native Guide Project, which uses positive reinforcement statements to address microaggressions towards indigenous people and cultures, um, many times or part of it is on social media through a semi-anonymous Instagram handle.
2: So we're standing in front of a piece right by the the beginning of, of the exhibition, what is this and sort of why why is it here and why did you kind of want to start with this one?
5: Sure. So this work is by Christopher Jagman, it's titled Preamble. And what we're looking at is a piece, a large piece of white paper with pink colored pencil that has filled out an area and left several words in the negative. So the words are white, the area around it's pink. Um, This is essentially the preamble, which is the first sentence of the U.S. Constitution rewritten using Polari, which is a secret language mainly used by gay men and lesbians in London in the early to mid-20th century when homosexuality was illegal. So, you know, the language itself is a complex combination of many different um, slangs from subcultures. But one of the things that I like to start with this as well, why I like to start with this is because... It makes us think about why people might have to speak in a language that isn't easily recognizable. And often that's because they're living secret lives where other people will not be able to either relate or they might have, um, you know, actual repercussions from the choice of their lifestyles.
2: We then moved on to another piece in the exhibit. This one comprised of a series of copper plates with words on them.
5: So this work is by Jenny Holzer. It's titled Happening with Russia. And Jenny Holzer has been using language and words and politically driven work really since the 1980s. But what we're looking at are 40 etched copper panels and the text on them um, are documents, US government documents, in particular, pages from the Mueller report. Now, when I say pages from the Mueller report, I mean the pages that became public. When we look at them, it's very obvious that a majority of the text has been redacted, meaning it's been completely taken away and there's just these boxes of emptiness in there. Um, The most interesting thing to me about it is many of them say unclassified and or secret but crossed out, and yet all except for maybe like a sentence is redacted. So the question is, if it's unclassified and it's going out to the public, then who is deciding to redact this information? What is it protecting and who is it protecting?
2: After that, we moved on to take a look at one more piece in the exhibit.
5: So this is April Bay's. Um, it's called Welcome to Atlantica, Hotel Room, Planet Guide. And what we're looking at in terms of the book is a handmade book uh, stitched together. There's fabric, there's glitter, there's uh, magazine cutouts, but most importantly, all of this work here, you know, this specific work and all of the works by April Bay in this exhibition are talking about the planet Atlantica. And Atlantica is Bay's expansive mythological universe. And in this universe, it has its own history, its own geography, its own wars, its own fashion, its own commerce. So on Atlantica, James Baldwin is president. Its currency is glitter, but most importantly, it's a place where black people prosper, where black culture and black experience is at the forefront.
2: What kinds of conversations and maybe questions have you maybe overheard visitors to this show talking about or things that they're like, I'm not really sure I get that, or oh, that's really interesting.
5: Oh, There's so many things. One of the wonderful things about this show is it's actually creating a lot of conversation in the community there's so many different responses people who come in here and who are um, maybe even slightly offended by what some of the artists are doing by the end often realize that the conversation is not supposed to make them feel well it is supposed to make everyone feel uncomfortable being uncomfortable is not a bad thing at all that's how we learn but they realize that it wasn't against something or or one-sided that it's really just kind of a bigger conversation of how we can listen to each other and better understand each other in this time where you say one word or like you say a word and you automatically think that those people are on opposite opposite side as you and that you have nothing in common and maybe that's so but it's still important to listen to people and acknowledge them and then you know Continue on. Communication is just one aspect of the human experience. And if we wrap so much around it, around these words that are being used, then we will just get lost and we'll never live in this present moment and enjoy the things that are here.
2: So do you in some ways see this exhibition as maybe a way of fostering those kinds of communications and maybe improving our collective listening skills to you know, not just take that one word that somebody says that sort of like raises your guard up and like, okay, they're they're not with us, they're, they're a them. As opposed to just listening to each other and recognizing where we're all coming from and that, you know, that we have differences, but in the end, like we can all listen to each other and be kind to each other and try to understand where we're all coming from.
5: Yes, that's my answer, yes, absolutely.
2: Lauren O'Connell is curator of contemporary art at the Scottsdale Museum of Contemporary Art. Language in times of miscommunication will be on display through August 27th.
0: And finally, in Tribal Natural Resources, which is supported in part by a grant from the Katina Foundation. A Phoenix firm has proposed building a dam on a tributary of the Little Colorado River for hydroelectric power. But as Ron Dungan reports, the project has drawn criticism from a northern Arizona tribe.
2: Pumped Hydro Storage LLC has submitted three proposals to build dams on Navajo Nation land in a little Colorado River watershed. It has withdrawn two of them. But tribal members say they were never consulted about the projects. A year ago, the nonprofit Save the Confluence gathered 87,000 signatures on petitions opposing the dams and recently asked the company to cancel its application to the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Last week, 18 Navajo Nation chapter houses submitted resolutions opposed to the project. Ron Dungan, KJZZ News, Phoenix.